Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, the first 18 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahah. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edre. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your, your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, The thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. This is the word of the Lord. We hear in Deuteronomy 1 how Moses was not able to bear all Israel alone. Uh, it's reflecting back on the story of, from Exodus 18 about how, how Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had, had watched Moses as, as Moses is, is sitting there uh, judging the people day, all, all day long from morning till evening. And, and Jethro's like, this is crazy. You don't have time to do all this and everything else God commands you. And so he had advised Moses to appoint elders from within the congregation to judge each part of the congregation. Easy cases could be handled locally, but when a hard case arose, then they could send it up for Moses to deal with. Now, that, that pattern of having sort of appeals courts has long been followed both in the civil and in the ecclesiastical realm. You know, in, in Acts 15, when the elders in Antioch were having difficulty with a particular topic, they sent the case to Jerusalem for adjudication. That's sort of the part of the pattern of, of when it's too difficult for the local church, then there needs to be a, a broader court. Some, some say broader, some say higher. Uh, but the point being that there's some place to go to appeal. We sing of how this pattern is supposed to work in Psalm 72, because as God established Israel's polity, the king was to be the court of final appeal. And he, like Moses had said, is to judge with God's judgment. 
Give the king your justice, O God. The king is to deliver the needy from those who would use the courts to oppress. If you know anything about legal history, you know that the courts and laws have often been used, dare I say, always been used by the powerful to squash the helpless. I'm just following the law. Well, but the law is well designed and the courts are well designed to protect the interests of the powerful. The helpless oftentimes don't understand court procedure. They, in our world, they can't afford good lawyers. And so they can be helpless before the law as they are before their oppressors. But the Lord's anointed, the king, has pity on the weak and the needy. He delivers the one who has no helper. Indeed, that is what our Lord Jesus Christ is as the great king. And that's how he calls us to be as his people, to reflect his care for those who are helpless. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 7. Hear now the word of our God, Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. There are many things about the life of the New Testament church that we, we just don't know. We know that they worshipped on Sunday, but the details of how that all worked. We know that they had elders, but what did an elders meeting look like? Usually the, the only time that we get a glimpse of something in the New Testament church is when something goes wrong. But through examining many of the apostles' offhand comments, we can catch a glimpse of how the apostolic church functioned. Uh, and that's part of, as I, as I reflected on where we are in the Colossians series, I realized that as we talked about, sort of, we talked a little bit last time about the way in which the, the churches in Colossae seem to have something of a presbytery. Uh, but the presbytery, it's a, it's a, connect, it's a connected church. I mean, 
It, it, part of the details of early church polity are, are hard to, to grasp, and yet it can be useful to see both what Scripture tells us, but then also to watch how it develops in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, because they were closer to the apostolic teaching, and so you can see how things that the apostles started would have continued for a while. But let me just say up front that from what I can see, the apostolic polity does not fit any modern polity that I see on the planet today. It's a sort of Presbyterianism. There are plainly elderships or you know, presbyteries, I mean, because that's what that's presbyteros being the Greek word. There are elderships that govern groups of churches. But modern Presbyterianism has all sorts of echoes of modern Republican government woven in. You could call ancient church government something of an Episcopalianism, since there are bishops and for instance, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem for decades. He's not just a moderator elected annually like in the Presbyterian, you know, like a Presbytery would do it. So it's, it's something like an episcopacy. But since the 5th century, Episcopalianism has adopted the diocesan model. Uh, a, a diocese actually was originally a Roman civil government territory. So the diocese of Asia was sort of what we call Western Turkey, and it was it had a governor that was appointed by the emperor. <laughs> that was the diocese. And so what happened was in the in the early church they just adopted they they started using those territorial systems for appointing bishops to cover large territories. Well, that's not what you see in the first few centuries of the church. In the fourth century and before, you find bishops in every little dusty village. A, you know, if, if, there was a, if there was a church doing it sort of in a biblical Episcopalianism sort of way, there would be probably at least three or four bishops in St. Joe County. There'd be a bishop of South Bend, a bishop of Mishawaka, a bishop of Granger, a bishop of uh, sort of the... Uh, uh, Walkerton. I mean, sort of, sort of, that's because each town had its own bishop. Uh, now, there might be many congregations within the city. Uh, and, it, and that's where, in the, in the New Testament era, in the first century, it's possible there are even multiple bishops in one city. When Paul writes to, to the Philippians, he writes to the bishops, plural, and deacons in Philippi. So, how many bishops were there in a city? Some, some argue, oh, in the New Testament, bishop is just the same thing as elder. Well, is it? That, that, that's, so there's, part of it is we have so little information to work on that it can be hard to know how exactly does all this work? Now, the Westminster Confession tells us we shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, the Westminster Confessions, chapter 1, section 6, says, There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. Since scripture doesn't give us detailed instructions on church polity, we should expect a certain amount of variety from place to place and from age to age we shouldn't be surprised to see the church in the Roman Empire adopt something of a diocesan approach. Uh, but I'll note, historians sometimes get in trouble because they look, at, they look at the Roman Empire and they see, ah, 
bishops in the Roman Empire had these large territories, and so then they look at, say, the gospel as it spreads eastward into Assyria and out into India, and they see the number of bishops, and they try to calculate the Christian population based on the number of bishops out there, the same way you'd calculate based on the number of bishops in the Roman Empire. It doesn't work that way. Because out in these missionary bishops who are going eastward, they're probably, they have, they're probably every little dusty one-horse village has their own bishop. So calculating numbers based on, oh, they have a bishop, therefore they must have X number of people. Eh, not necessarily a good idea. But, so in the same way that we shouldn't be surprised to see the church in the Roman Empire develop a diocesan episcopacy, we also shouldn't be surprised at the Republican influence on the development of Presbyterianism, so that Presbyterianism has all sorts of features that look more like modern society than anything recognizable in the apostolic age. And though I hate to admit it, we shouldn't be surprised by the populist impulse today, although the key is to remember that the general rules of the word are always to be observed. And so what I'd like to do today is focus on some of those general rules of the word that should always characterize church government and church order. We saw last time from Colossians 4 that Paul always travels with this traveling presbytery, this this group of, of his uh, fellow preachers, evangelists, interns, uh, these younger men who are preparing for the ministry as well as experienced preachers who are traveling with him. He describes Tychicus as a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. These are all terms that Paul uses to describe his colleagues in the ministry. Tychicus was the bearer of the letter to Ephesus later. Uh, And Paul says that he has sent Tychicus in order to update the Colossians on Paul's activities, that he may encourage your hearts. But we should dig in a little more and think about the language Paul uses when he calls Tychicus a faithful minister. Now, the word there translated minister is diakonos. So why don't your translations say a faithful deacon? Because it could, you could just translate it a faithful deacon. Is, is Tychicus a deacon? Well, yes. But what is a deacon? <laughs> this is where sometimes our translations are, they're, they're, doing, they're doing very well here when they translate this minister. I'm not arguing at all that they should have translated it deacon because deacon isn't really a translation. Deacon is a transliteration. Diakonos, deacon. When you translate diakonos as deacon, you're not answering the question. What is the English parallel correspondent to a diakonos? And I'm going to suggest... I'll just say this right up front. Minister is a really good translation of this. The question is, what sort of ministry does he have? And in order, to, in order to really dig into this, I suggest that we turn over to the book of Acts in chapter 6, because this is the passage that speaks of, um, of where the, the, the ministry uh, was first sort of developed in the apostolic church. And I say the ministry is because you know, I'm going to try to do my best to avoid calling them deacons. Because what's a deacon? 
we're only going to know what a deacon is if we find out what these what what is a minister, what is a diakonos, and what is a diakonia. So let's just read chapter six of the book of Acts, verses one through seven. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will appoint ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is a good illustration of the point that if nothing had gone wrong, we never would have known what was happening. If it were not for the problem in Jerusalem regarding the daily distribution, we never would have known that there was a daily distribution for the widows. Part of this is just in the ancient world, they, they didn't have Social Security. There was no pension fund. There, what they had was there was a sort of life insurance through funeral clubs. But these all had a very strong religious dimension. So your, your life insurance, basically, who, who would pay for your funeral and uh, make sure that your family was taken care of? Well, that would be your patron. It's part of this patronage system, which is all oriented around pagan temples, except in the Jewish community where it's or, or, or oriented around God's temple. <laughs> but what's happening as the Christians are starting to separate out from the synagogues as the Christians, if you were still part of the synagogue, your widows, your people would be taken care of through the synagogue. But that doesn't exist if, you, if you're no longer part of the synagogue. That Judaism put a high priority on caring for widows because widows were especially vulnerable and protecting the weak and the helpless was a, a very strong command throughout the scriptures, care for the widows and the orphans. So the early Christians are now meeting, uh, they're, they're meeting together in the temple and from house to house, we've been told. If, if they were still attending the synagogue on Saturday, their widows would have been covered through the synagogue. But the fact that they have a daily distribution for widows suggests that they have broken with the synagogue to some extent. The church now has to take care of her own widows. But the Jerusalem church is a mixed bunch. In Acts 2, we were told that many of these early believers spoke other languages. Uh, they're, they're all Jews or proselytes, but there are many who are Greek-speaking and others who are Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking. But a, a complaint arose that the normal channels of communication and distribution were overlooking the Greek-speaking or Hellenistic widows. Uh, part of this is that in Acts 2, when all these people were converted on the day of Pentecost, we're told that they, they decided not to leave. They stayed in Jerusalem. They had only come here for the feast, but now they've been staying in Jerusalem for several years. This is how radically they have broken with their former life. They've said, okay, we need to follow Jesus, whatever that means, whatever cost. And so now part of the problem is they are, they're, they're sojourners. They don't have a strong social network. And so the, 
with the, the, the way this, the daily distribution had been handled, apparently it was being done in a more or less ad hoc basis. Um, in our day, we might call it a, a self-appointed committee. Um, with, with several thousand believers living in Jerusalem, there'd be a whole group, there'd be several sort of messianic synagogues, gatherings of, of Jesus worshipers who are, who are, some of whom are speaking Greek, others are speaking Aramaic. And the concern is that the Aramaic-speaking Hebraic Jews are neglecting the Greek-speaking widows. And you can understand how this happens. The Aramaic-speaking Jews were locals. They know the local widows better. They don't know the Greek-speaking widows as well. It's not necessarily an intentional slight. It's just, it, could, it looks like an accident. And so a complaint is brought to the Twelve. Notice the importance of good complaints. Hey, there's a problem here. We need to deal with this. And the twelve quickly realize they don't have time to administer all the details of church life, and so they decide to establish the seven. And I, I prefer referring to them as the seven because if we call them deacons, we'll pre- prejudice the question as to what they're doing. So let's just call them the seven for now. Who are these seven, and what are they appointed to do? Now, while they're never named as deacons, the same root, the word diakonia, appears uh, uh, twice, and then the verb diakoneo is also used in verse 2 as referring to, to serve tables. But in, in verse 1, it refers to, uh, the, when it refers to the daily distribution it's the, or the daily service, this is the daily ministry, the daily diakonia. And then in verse 4, it's also used when it says we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the diakonia, the ministry of the word. So here we have two different diakonias, two different ministries. There's a ministry of, of service and a ministry of the word. And the same word diakonia is the word used earlier in Acts 1 where Judas is said to have had a share in the diakonia with the apostles and then they pray and ask God to show them who should take the place in this diakonia, in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside. So you can see that Okay, diakonia is a, is a ministry or a service, and, so that's, and there are two distinct diakonias, two distinct, distinct ministries that are being referred to here, the, the ministry to widows and the ministry of the word. And the twelve say that because of the need for them to remain focused on the ministry of the word, they need the seven to take care of the ministry for providing for widows. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the basic idea of diakonia refers to a ministry or a service. The word diakonos, deacon or minister, then refers to one who has a ministry or a service. Now, as you go through the New Testament, this, gets, this word gets used a lot. Paul often refers to himself as a diakonos of Christ, a deacon of Christ, a, a servant a, or a minister of Christ. It's why we often refer to pastors as ministers, because the word diakonos is either translated deacon or minister or servant, depending on context. In Romans 13, verse 4, Paul even says that the governing authorities are diakonoi, they're deacons. The governing authorities are deacons of God. They are ministers of God who serve him. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Paul says that both he and Apollos are diakonoi, ministers of the Lord. They are both preaching Christ. Likewise, in Ephesians 3, verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a deacon according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So Paul refers to himself as a minister, a diakonos, of the gospel. So because he has a ministry, a diakonia, of preaching, therefore he is a minister, a diakonos, of the gospel. Also, in Rome, uh, when, when Paul speaks of, of, of the governing authorities, you can see how you know, Paul is a deacon, uh, Stephen is a deacon, the governing authorities are deacons. <laughs> so what's a deacon? The simplest way of defining a, a diakonos is one who serves on behalf of another. So it's a, some, a diakonos is never one who has sort of inherent authority. So, for instance, the when, when a when you know, if, if God, if, you think about okay, well, who has an inherent authority? Well, oh, God Himself. Um, everybody else has derivative authority, and so if, if you are, if, if even if even the rulers, if even the kings and emperors of the earth are diakonoi, who has inherent authority? Only God Himself. Everyone else has derivative authority. I mean, this, this is where it's any authority that one human being has over another is a, is a ministry, is a service. All authority is to be used in order to serve those and, and guide those under your care. If, if you think of the way we use the word minister in English, actually, the word minister covers pretty much every usage of diakonos I can think of in the New Testament. Because a, in many countries, uh, their cabinet positions are called ministers. So there's the foreign minister, the minister of defense. These persons serve on behalf of the president or the prime minister, which simply means the first minister. And that's the way that the word diakonos is used. It's one who serves on behalf of another. So it's appropriate to think of the seven as deacons because they are ministers who are to take care of the ministry to widows. But then again, the twelve are also deacons. They are ministers who are to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So to say that the seven are deacons is just fine, so long as you also say that the twelve, the apostles, are deacons. But what is the particular ministry to which they are called? And if you are a minister, if you are a deacon, if you are a servant, then you must have a ministry. What is your ministry? There is a sense in which all of God's people are diakonoi, because we all have the ministry of, of loving one another and, and, of, and of being part of the kingdom of Christ. But then the word diakonos is more commonly used to refer to those who have specific ministries in the church. Anyone who is serving on behalf of the church could properly be called a diakonos or minister. It's probably in this sense that Phoebe is called a deacon of the church at Kencray in Romans 16.1. She is the bearer of the letter that Paul sent to the Romans, which would make her a diakonos. Because as one who is bearing the letter, she has been appointed to this service. This is her, this is her ministry. 
So anyone who has a specific ministry in the church could properly be called a diakonos, a minister. And that's why if you're going to use the term minister or deacon, you should probably be a little more specific. Because which ministry? Because there are, there are many ministries in the church. I am called to be a minister of the gospel, preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments. So mine is the ministry of word and sacrament. The elders are called to the ministry of rule, the service of governing the flock. And what about, what about the deacons? Their very title is ambiguous because every believer has the general office of believer and then you have this other group called the deacons. What is the ministry that deacons are called to do? In verses 2 through 6 here in chapter 6 of Acts, it would initially appear that they were to focus on the daily ministry to widows. And that's why some would say, ah, oh, it's the ministry of service, it's the it's ministry of mercy, that's the, that's the focus of deacons. After all, the twelve say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So you'll often hear people saying that this passage demonstrates that the diaconia, the ministry of caring for widows, caring for the afflicted, is the task of deacons. But we need to see that this passage doesn't exist in a vacuum. So far we've been looking at it more detached, but let's zoom back into the context. Chapters 6 through 8 of the book of Acts will focus not on the deeds of the twelve, but on the deeds of the seven. Chapters 6 and 7 will tell how Stephen did mighty deeds, engaged in disputes and debates, speaking with the wisdom with wisdom and the Spirit in verse 10. He testifies to the resurrection of Jesus and then gets stoned to death. Chapter 8 will tell us about how Philip, another one of the seven, starts preaching and baptizing and casting out demons as he brings the gospel to Samaria. Wait a, wait a second. I, I, I thought the seven were supposed to focus on the ministry of taking care of widows. What are they doing? I mean, traveling to Samaria, preaching, baptizing. What? What's going on? Now, some have argued that Stephen was just doing what any Christian would have done. But if you look at what he does, he does the sorts of things that Peter had done, and before that, that Jesus had done. Others have claimed that Philip must have been ordained as an evangelist. After all, he is called an evangelist later. But there's nowhere that speaks of some later ordination. The way the narrative is written, Luke portrays the ordination of the seven as being followed shortly by the martyrdom of, of Stephen, the scattering of the believers, and Philip going off and preaching and baptizing. So it doesn't look like there was time for an, some other ordination. So the key to understanding the seven is to understand what Luke calls them. The seven. He does not call them bishops, he does not call them presbyters, he does not call them deacons. He simply calls them the seven. If you think about it, who are the officers of the church at this time? There's the twelve apostles that Jesus appointed, and then there's the seven. Their ministry, their diaconia, was, was certainly, it started around making sure that the ministry to widows was properly handled, but they weren't just set apart for that purpose only. They can preach, they can baptize. They are simply the first ministers, the first deacons appointed by the apostles, but 
there is no differentiation between the sort of differences in the office and in Act 6. Those differences will come out later in the New Testament. But in Act 6, what you've got is this is simply where church office starts. So you might say all of the ministry of of what we now call bishops, elders, deacons, or do you, if I stay with the transliterations, bishops, presbyters, and deacons, all of bishop, presbyter, and deacon is found in the seven. That's their ministry. Their ministry is simply as the first seven church officers. And indeed, as, as such, the apostles are recognizing, wait a second, we can't, we can't do this. If, if we're supposed to make disciples of the nations, if we're, then we can't be in charge of the church in Jerusalem and, and also go elsewhere. So there's a way in which the, the seven are appointed to extend the, the ministry of the apostles. Uh, and that's where you can see how ever since pastors, elders, deacons are also an extension of the apostolic ministry. Just as the seven took the gospel to all Judea and Samaria, so now the ordained servants, the, the ministers of the church, the diaconoi of the church, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. After all, in, in, until the ordination of the seven, there were only 12 officers in the church, and they had charge over several thousand members. That wasn't going to work very well. So the, the apostles are not writing a church order. They're addressing a need in the church but they don't just sort of do this willy-nilly. When the apostles think about how to govern the church, they turn to scripture. And they do what Moses had done when he needed help. Because actually, the process they follow in Acts 6 is very much like what we read about in Deuteronomy 1. When he said, choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. In Numbers 11, when Moses complained it was too hard to lead the people alone, the Lord took 70 of the elders of Israel and gave them some of the spirit that was on Moses. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Now the twelve discover the same thing that Moses had seen. Governing the people of God is a perplexing and difficult thing. The twelve need others to join them. So when you, when you see the parallels between what Moses did in appointing elders and what the twelve do in appointing the seven you begin to see what this passage is doing in the book of Acts. Moses had appointed elders in order to maintain order and continuity in the Old Testament church, and the apostles do the same. Even the method that they, they, they use sounds like what Moses had said. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I mean, here you see clearly the, the right of the congregation to choose their own rulers but also the responsibility of those in authority to set the criteria. Men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. And also the responsibility of those in authority to appoint or ordain. It's why our practice is, and our church order requires, that we start with nominations as we, as we, for, for elder or for deacon. The congregation suggests names, and then the, the elders provide training in order to ensure that the nominees are properly prepared. And then we have an election where you, the congregation, tell us which of these men we should appoint to this duty. Over the years, I've, I've heard some people say, oh, well, if the session thinks they're qualified, then who am I to say no? I appreciate what that expresses in terms of, 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 of your confidence in your elders. But that's not what the word of God says. 
The Word of God does not say that your elders have the right to decide who should lead you. The Word of God only gives elders the right to say, these are the qualifications, and based on the importance that Paul gives to training in 2 Timothy 2, it's appropriate for the elders to say, here are the trained men, but it is the congregation's decision as to who shall exercise the ministry of the Word, the ministry of rule, and the ministry of mercy. It's why it's important for you to get to know the men who are being trained for office. Because you're looking for a Stephen, one who is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So the the Jerusalem church sets the seven before the apostles. And then they prayed and and laid their hands on them. Ordination is not a a sacrament. But it's it's actually a lot like marriage. It's it's a holy ordinance. There's, There's a lot of parallels between marriage and ordination, uh, something significant happens in the event itself. If you think about like at a wedding, if the couple was sleeping together prior, you'd say they were sinning, but if they sleep together that night, you say they're obeying God. Something just changed pretty dramatically as to take something that would have been a sin the night before now to be something holy. How did something changes there? So we don't call marriage a sacrament. And the reason why we don't is because marriage is for all people. If it was a sacrament, it would be only for Christians. So, therefore, since marriage is for all people, therefore we don't call it a sacrament. But it is a holy ordinance that God ordained in the beginning for all of humanity. And in the same way, in ordination, a man is empowered and commissioned by Christ to represent him. Because a a diakonos, a, a minister, is one who serves on behalf of another. In ordination, you are given to the church as a representative of Christ. That's what ordination is. Now, many of you have have heard of my favorite way to describe marriage, that marriage is martyrdom. Because in marriage, you are called to lay down your life for your, your bride, even as Christ laid down his life for us. Even so, ordination is martyrdom. When those hands are laid upon you, you are called to lay down your life for those you serve. So ordination is martyrdom, as Stephen found out quite literally. But verse 7 concludes our passage with a remarkable phrase. The word of God continued to increase. It's actually, Paul will use the same phrase in Colossians chapter 1, that the gospel increases and grows. How does it? How does the gospel increase? How does the word of God get bigger? Well, now there are seven more mouths to proclaim it. And as the word of God goes forth, it increases and grows, bearing fruit throughout Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria, and eventually even out here to the wilds of northern Indiana. And as the word of God increased, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Today, in the church, through the the general principles laid out by the apostles, we've divided up the duties and ministries of the seven into three parts. We have the ministry of, of word and sacrament, which we give to pastors. The ministry of rule, which we give to elders both teaching and ruling. The ministry of, of mercy, which we have given to deacons. There's no single text in scripture that sets forth what the deacons are supposed to do. We hear about their qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, but since Acts 6 is not talking about the specific office of deacon, 
Instead, Acts 6 is talking about the establishment of ordained office in general. So there, there is no passage that says, here's what deacons must do. Rather, what we learn from Acts 6 is that even as the seven take on the responsibilities the twelve give them, so also the deacons should take on whatever responsibilities the elders have given them. And in our book of church order, we as the Presbyterian Church in America have decided we want our deacons to focus on mercy ministry and overseeing the the, the finances of the church. And we do this so that pastors and elders can focus on their ministries more effectively because we also desire to see the word continue to increase and grow. So that's where it's not... It's not that there sort of scripture, scripture requires all the details of what each office is supposed to be. It's rather scripture says, here's the general rules. And that's where you can see how there's a, there's a variety of church polities that can fulfill this in a way that's consistent with the word of God. But that's where, that's why, but ours, we've, we've decided we want to have our deacons focus on the ministry of mercy because we, we hear of what what Moses' concern was in Deuteronomy 1. We hear what we sang about in Psalm 72. We want to make sure that the weak and the oppressed, the helpless, have friends to help them. And that's part of the way that our, our church order even describes the office of deacon as one who is to be a friend to the friendless. Um, that, that's an expression of the care of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. And so that's how we ought to walk as his people. So let's pray. Lord, help us and be merciful to us for Jesus' sake. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your, what you have revealed to us about what your son, our Lord Jesus, has accomplished in, in delivering us from the bonds of death and in giving to us the ministry of the word that your gospel might go forth and the ministry of, of rule that, that, we might, that we might be shepherded in the path of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the ministry of, of mercy, that we, might, that we might show forth that same mercy to those around us. Help us, Lord, and, 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 and strengthen us as we walk before you as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.